ever take a minute to stop and ask yourself, who am I and why am I here? Most of us probably do from time to time, although the bulk of our thinking is dedicated to practical, day-to-day -day concerns like, did I get the rent paid this month, and what will we be having for dinner tonight? But are the deepest, most foundational questions we can ask about ourselves worth some serious consideration? Today on In Storied, we explore questions of ultimate origins. Specifically, we look at how these questions are both asked and answered within the settings of ancient stories. As it turns out, there were some really good answers to these questions thousands of years ago, and I think they are still the best answers available today. As we examine a few of the ancient stories, you will notice they have some serious differences. And the differences matter because the stories we choose as our own ultimately determine who we think we are, who we think God is, and what in the world we think we are supposed to do with our lives. Hello everyone, Happy New Year! Welcome to In Storied. I'm Corey Smith, and we're going to start this show by talking about origin stories. I think we generally like origin stories. I remember back in the early 2000s when we had the big influx in the theaters of superhero movies. To me, one of the best parts of those movies is seeing the sometimes humble beginnings of these characters, how they get their powers, and how they get drawn up into the bigger stories they eventually become a part of. We like knowing the backstories of our favorite characters. And we also like knowing the backstories of our favorite people in real life. Getting to know a friend better involves learning their history. Knowing where someone comes from helps us to understand them better and, and relate to them better. So that's looking at origin stories on an individual level. What about our collective origin story as human beings? Where do we come from? Well, as it turns out, there are some very ancient writings that we have access to that deal with that very thing. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school like me, we grew up learning this story from the Bible in the book of Genesis. The word Genesis in the Greek means origin, and that's exactly what you get when you read the first couple of chapters, the origin story for all of humanity. For Jews and Christians, this is the story of how we came to be. But for the earliest readers of Genesis 1 and 2, when those words were first written thousands of years ago, Genesis was not the only story. Their neighbors from other cultures also had their stories that served the same purpose, but these, these were entirely different stories. There were definitely overlapping details to be found, but the differences were significant. And those differences had profound implications on how the people viewed themselves and their place in the world. Because regardless of which of these origin stories you subscribe to, they all set out to perform the same function. And that is looking at the past to gain an understanding of what it means to be alive in the present, to be human. So whether the story comes from ancient Israel or one of the other neighboring people groups around them, these stories all set out to answer the same kinds of questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And what is my relationship to the God or gods who created me? 
Jews and Christians know we can bring these kinds of questions to the first two chapters of Genesis for answers. But in my experience, and this is just what I've observed over the years, is that those are not the questions we usually go to the beginning of the Bible to seek answers for. Instead, we have another question we tend to be more interested in, and that is, how did God do it? How did God bring the known universe into existence? It's a question of origins, but it's a question of material origins. And most of us modern Westerners seek an answer to that question first. How did God create everything? Was it in six literal days, or was it actually longer, and the days symbolically represent longer periods of time? How did it really go? For the ancient readers of Genesis, this was not a matter of first importance for them, as it is for us today. Now, they would have read Genesis 1 and 2 to find out first who God is and who we are. What is God like, and what does it mean to be a person He created? I've got an analogy to help get our minds around the difference. Say a child comes up to you and asks where babies come from. Now, if you're a parent and you haven't been asked this question yet, you will, so it's good to think through your answer ahead of time. You have two directions you can go with your answer. One is to give the most biologically, scientifically accurate answer you dare to give, depending on how old the child is who is asking. And I think most of us would tend to go this route, which is kind of shocking, really, when you consider how terrified most of us as parents are when it comes to actually verbalizing any of the mechanics around pregnancy. Now, the other direction you can go in answering the question of where babies come from starts something like this. When a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, it's almost cliche, but pay attention to how the beginning of this answer is framed. A child coming into the world is predicated on a deeply committed relationship. And some might say, well, that's the ideal. And yes, it is the ideal. And I honestly think it's the best answer to give, whether the person asking is three years old or 13 or even 30 for that matter. Now, given these two basic kinds of answers we can give, which is the most helpful, the most important, and the most meaningful? The first answer, though factually accurate, really only accounts for the material origins of a human being. And I would say that's insufficient because there is more to being human, more to coming alive through birth than simply the confluence of certain biological factors between a man and a woman. And that's what gives the second answer its power. The second answer provides the backdrop of meaning against which the first answer takes place. And that's love. The deeply committed love of the parents for one another to bring a child into the world together and the ongoing commitment of that love to sustain them all together as a family. The love is what initiates it. The love is what sustains it. So this analogy does the same kind of work for Genesis and really any of these ancient creation narratives that we might explore, which is to place the focus where it is primarily intended to be. What does it mean to be human? rather than simply the mechanics of how the human race came about.
So let's talk a little bit about some of the origin stories of the human race that we're probably not as familiar with. Now, you can find these and more just by searching the internet, or if you really want to go hog wild, there are some great resources out there comparing these ancient creation narratives to one another. I recommend the work of Old Testament scholar John Walton. Part of what I'm about to share with you comes from his excellent book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. He also wrote the Lost World series of books that he did through InterVarsity Press. Those books are super helpful as well. So the two ancient origin stories we're going to touch on are the Sumerian creation story and the Babylonian creation story. There's a lot that could be said about the interrelationship between these two stories because the Sumerians and the Babylonians occupied the same region during different times in history, but for our purposes, we're just going to focus on the distinctions. The Cliff Notes version of the Sumerian story is that the gods became tired of doing all the hard work of taking care of the world. So one of the gods named Enki arranged to have humans created from the clay of the ground. A little bit of overlap there from the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. So that the humans then can do all the hard work and the gods could finally sit back and take it easy. Now, the moral of the story here being that the gods are opposed to doing hard work themselves and so they create humans to do the work so they won't have to. The Babylonian story, we'll go into a bit more detail here, revolves around an epic battle. In this story, there are two powerful gods who represent the waters. Apsu is the god of the fresh water. Tiamat is the salt water. So these two gods are essentially husband and wife, and from them you get the lesser gods. Well, the lesser gods kill Apsu, and Tiamat intends to strike back against them in revenge. So the lesser gods select Marduk as their champion, to fight Tiamat to the death, and Marduk manages to win that fight, and in so doing becomes the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. And it says that from the slain body of Tiamat, Marduk creates the world. Now remember, Tiamat is the salt water. She is the sea. So here you have a similar concept to what we see in Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep waters, poised and ready to create the world. So Marduk creates the world from the slain body of Tiamat, and then he creates humans from the blood of another god that he defeated when he mixes the blood with the clay of the earth. So now we have here just the gist of these two origin stories. So let's see how each of them answer the questions of what the gods are like and what does it mean to be human. So let's look at the question of gods first. What are the gods like? Well, from the small sampling we took from the Sumerian story, we immediately noticed that the gods are, well, they're kind of lazy. If you read more and gather more details, you'll also notice that they are indulgent, they are self-centered, and they are often deceptive. They can't be trusted. And when you throw in what we learned from the Babylonian story, you see that they are often at one another's throats. They are territorial and will betray and kill one another to suit their purposes. So in short, the gods of these stories often do some of the worst things that humans do to one another. Now, contrast this picture of the gods 
with the God we see in the story of Genesis 1 and 2. Right off the bat, we notice that Genesis 1 and 2 lacks the huge cast of characters of the Babylonian story. It's just God, the two humans he creates, and the animals. And one very crafty creature in particular that we'll talk about here in a few weeks. So this is one feature of Israelite religion that is a major departure from their neighbors, and that is that they worship only one God, or they are supposed to anyway. They have a hard time with that. And it's not that they disavow the existence of other gods. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments God gave them assumes other gods. Their commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. God wants commitment from them in a way that the gods of their neighbors simply don't expect from other people. Because the other gods all have separate jobs, essentially. You have a god of fertility, a god of the harvest, a god for war, a god for all kinds of occasions. And it's the responsibility of the people to figure out which god to pray to for whatever it is they need or want. And there's no expectations among the rest of the gods that you would only just worship one of them because they're set up in such a way that they each have their own separate sphere of influence or expertise. You go to the one God for this, you go to the other God for that. You don't go to one God for all things. That's where Israel differs so greatly. This is the big difference between the God of Israel, the God of the Jews and the Christians today, and the gods of virtually everyone else at the time. The relationship between the other people groups and their gods was transactional. The gods are mostly disinterested in the humans, so if you want something from them, you'll have to get their attention by giving them a sacrifice, an offering that they'll actually want, and then maybe they'll pay attention enough to bless you. It's transactional. The God of the Bible is not transactional in his dealing with humans. He is relational. He wants relationships. This is such a good thing about the God of the Bible, which is why it's so mind-blowing that rather than taking God up on his offer of relationship, we'd often rather have the transactional arrangement. You ever been in a bad situation and said, all right, God, if you'll get me out of this one, I'll never do that thing again, whatever that thing is. We'd rather strike a one-time deal with God even if it's very costly to us, than to seek and stay in a relationship with him. You see this in the pages of the Bible. The prophets are all over Israel for this kind of behavior where they think they can just neglect their relationship with God if they make the right sacrifices and offerings. And God says, I'd rather you not even make those kinds of offerings. Why don't you keep them? Because they don't mean anything to me if you're not going to try and walk through this life with me by your side. God consistently demonstrates in the Old Testament story that he is trustworthy. He makes promises called covenants to show that unlike the gods of the other stories, he can be trusted, which is precisely what faith is, by the way. So lastly, let's take a look at what these stories have to say about who humans are, what is our purpose, what does it mean to be human. So on the Sumerian account, humans were made to work so the gods wouldn't have to. Now, to be fair, the man and the woman in Genesis 1 and 2 are there to work and tend the garden. Work plays a role in both stories. The difference is, and we'll get into this more next week, is that humans in Genesis are given a higher station because they bear God's image. 
In the, in the Sumerian story, humans work, gods don't. This is a pretty useful narrative when you consider that Sumerian kings are considered divine. They are essentially gods, and they want everyone below them to build their cities and castles for them. The story reinforces the outcomes that those in power want to accomplish. The kings are the image of gods in a way that everyone else isn't. But in the Genesis story, every single human bears God's image, and no one human can claim to be more in God's image than another. No other ancient Near Eastern origin story has it quite this way. And then look at the Babylonian story. The gods battle. The world is wrought from violence. Humans themselves are a byproduct of violence, created in part from the blood of a slain god. Is it any wonder, then, that the history of the Babylonians is one of conquest, bloodshed, and war? If humans were made from it, from bloodshed, then the implications of the Babylonian story is that we were made for it. And the trajectory of that story is conquest by divine mandate. But in Genesis, God makes the world without conflict, without having to take down other gods to get the job done. He just speaks the world into existence. And when he makes humans, he makes them to have dominion over all that was made and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He makes us much like himself, really, to partner with him in his good purposes for the world that he made. So next week... We'll get into Genesis chapter 1 to try and unpack what this means and see how this all plays out. What did it mean for the first readers of Genesis? And is it still relevant for us today? Thanks for listening to In Story. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. And hit the subscribe button to receive new episodes each week. Remember to check the show notes for links to helpful resources. See you soon for another episode of In Storied.